I think it's important for those of us that are a few decades down the road in our faith journey that we tell the testimony of endurance, that we talk about the things that we've overcome. It's important for those who come behind us because when they, you remember when you faced the first difficult thing and you're like, I don't know if I can do this. Like over time, you just learn it doesn't make what you're enduring any easier. It just means, I just know that this isn't the end. Uh, tackle <clears throat> Revelation chapter 6 today. And one of the things that I want to impress upon you is that John is pulling his source material from a couple of places. One of them is the cultural space. And we've been talking a lot about that with the letters and the different towns and what's going on and some of the, the different things in the culture that are going on where we... Uh, we capture what's going on in the letter, in the culture and add it into the letter in order to make a point about <coughs> what's happening from a spiritual perspective. That, that's one of the ways that John is dealing with this. Now, the second source for his material is from the text. And this is really important because if we don't know the text well, we can't know Revelation well. I would offer that if we don't know the text well, we can't know the New Testament well. Um, and, and, and so think when the New Testament was written, it wasn't Scripture. It was canonized later. The only thing that they had as Scripture was the Hebrew Bible. And so it's it, every like you're like why doesn't John pull from Paul? Because Paul wasn't recognized as inspired at that point. That it's it's a different it's and I hope that doesn't confuse you. But you like we're like we're a New Testament church. I, just to be clear, like if you don't understand your Old Testament, you can't understand your New Testament. Like that, you've got to know the Old Testament well in order to have an accurate picture of what the New Testament is saying. Um, it's just the way it is. And I, it, I would even say it this way. Um, this, is gonna, this is a strong statement, but hear me. Um, there's this, the Old Testament and then like the New Testament is inspired commentary on the Old Testament. And I know it's like, it's Jesus and all of that. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. I hear you. I hear you. But you have to understand that the New Testament, the letters, the, the gospels, the, all of it, they're all pulling, connecting the dots between the Old Testament and what Jesus is and who God is and how the world's supposed to function. They're pulling all of that out of the Old Testament. John is getting his fundamental source material out of that space. And the problem is if we don't know that, then what we can do is try to um, make Revelation say something that it doesn't. Because we're trying to anchor it into the clouds somehow, which is hard to do, by the way. Um, the, these, what's more important is that these relevant texts 
are addressing the same issues that they are now dealing with as a reminder that this isn't the first time that, we've, that God's people have been here. This isn't the first time that God's people have been through these kind of tough issues. We've been here before. And that's comforting because what that means is we don't um, not know how to deal with this stuff. We're not at a loss here. God's people have been enduring these kinds of things for thousands of years. And we're going to be okay. And that's an important statement. In the midst of hard things, we're going to be okay. Now, in chapter 5 and in this... um, this prophecy, this revelation of the throne room of the universe, we're introduced to a scroll and no one can open it, which is a big deal because the scroll uh, is, it's what makes sense out of all of this. The scroll is what's supposed to help everything that's going on around us. The scroll is what helps us understand what's actually going on, what's behind the, the curtain, so to speak. Like, how is this actually happening? And no one can open it. And so John weeps, and then the angel comes to John, and he says, hey, weep no more. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy to open the scroll. And we're like, yeah, the lion, the lion. We expect like Azalon, right? Like lion. That's what we expect. But what happens is John turns around and he says, I saw a lamb that looked like it had been slain. That, that's the lion. That's power. And they're like, yeah, that's real power. (coughs) And he's worthy. Why is he worthy? He's worthy because he was a slain lamb. And, and so we spent two weeks in that space really trying to anchor that down because the rest of the book hinges on that premise. And this book has been so misunderstood to try to leverage, the, the, the Crusades used Revelation chapter 7, the, the 144,000, the army, they used that as permission to go and bully other people, like that's, and it's so not, like, there's no part of God's kingdom that's ever in the business of bullying other people. We lay our life down like the slain lamb. That's what we do. That's who we're supposed to be. And so in Revelation chapter 6, we start to open the scrolls and uh, the scroll and we start to break the seals and we start to see what, what is it that's happening? What, how does this scroll make it make sense? Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like a thunder, come. I don't know what that said. Come. Uh, that's what thunder sounds like. I think um, you've had a lot of experience with thunder over the last few weeks. You've gotten to, you know what thunder sounds like. Um, We've had some doozies. I don't think my trees are going to have any leaves left by the time the hail quits falling. Um, So, 
like thunders, voice like thunder, come. I don't know what that sounds like. Uh, and it looked, and behold, a white horse. Oh, okay. So here's where we are. The opening of the seals begins with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Wah, wah, wah. Now, by the way, I think that what we do is we put it into some futuristic like thing that's going to happen eventually. For the first readers of this, they didn't see this white horse as something to be looked forward to. They saw it as like, oh yeah, that's my life. How do they do that? Well, here's, here's what it says. It, it's a rider. Its rider had a bow and a crown and was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. What is that? Well, what we know is in apocalyptic literature, colors and numbers and um, there's these word, like these all have symbolic meanings. And what is this? Well, white is always the color of imperial conquest. It's always the color of imperial conquest. Think about uh, by the way, this isn't just apocalyptic. This is true in the ancient world. When, when, a, when a king or a prince or a governor or a, 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 a big government official comes into a town that they've conquered, they ride a horse. What color is it? White, always, always it's white. Why? Because it's a symbol of power. It's a symbol of domination. It's a symbol of conquest. That's what it is. So the white horse is ridden by a rider who came out conquering and to conquer. And for the first readers, they're like, that's not going to happen someday. That's my today. That happened right now. And, and when he opened the second seal, I heard the seven, second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Why? What else is red? Blood. Why is that? Because the rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Why? Because after the desire to have imperial conquest always comes war. That's just the way the world works. It's the way the world works. I want to have conquest. In fact, Rome had a mantra, uh, uh, this thing this, that they kept quoting, and it went like this, piety, war, victory, peace. And, and this is how, how it worked, is these, these are the four things. If I, if I have piety, then I go to war, then the gods give me victory, and then I have peace. So I hold to the faith of my forefathers, and then I go to war. And, and the gods give me the war, and that war leads to peace. Well, here's a question. Peace for who? Is it, because, because here's what John does with it. He goes, this, this red horse, the rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, not give it. War doesn't bring peace. It takes peace peace from somebody. So as long as I'm on the right side of war, then I can have peace. It's not real peace, but I can have peace because the problem is once I conquer you, I have to maintain it. 
And that becomes a lot of work. That's not peaceful. But, but what he says is this writer, this writer takes peace from the earth. This, this is the way the world works. Then we keep going. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. Why? The scales, the, you know, the two-sided scale. Why? Because this rider is all about injustice. It's all about injustice. And of course, of course, of course, imperial conquest leads to war, which leads to injustices of all kinds, by the way, economic injustice, uh, racial injustices, all kinds of injustices happen as a result of this worldview. And this is the way the world works. And again, for these readers, this isn't something that's far off for them. Now, here's the thing. If you want to take in some mystical sense, if you want to take this passage and apply it to the future or something that's coming or whatever, we can have that conversation, but that's not what John is doing. John is writing this to a group of people who aren't applying it to far off. They're applying it to like, oh, red horse? Oh yeah, that's, that's my neighbor. That's my family member. That's, we've, we've lived it. Economic injustice? Social, racial injustice? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We've, we live that. The, there are those who have and they take more, and there are those who don't have and can never have. Like This is the way the world works. An empire always leads to this. It always does. And so John's not pitching anything new for them. He's, they're like, oh, right, right, right. So in order to make sense out of this, what we have to see is that this is what's happening. The way of the world is winning. And then I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. By the way, we have this exact quote, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. We have this exact quote found in the ruins of Philadelphia on a clay piece of pottery. It's inscribed on a clay piece of pottery. They found it. It actually says exactly this. Understand this. This is a hundred times the inflation of the cost of those things at the time of Augustus. Why? Because this is what empire does. This is where empire goes. And let me say this. You can stick Jesus as your God, as the one who's delivering you and trying to help you conquer empire. It's still just empire. Just because you put Jesus in it doesn't mean that's what he wanted. See, the problem is Jesus doesn't come like an empire. He comes like a slain lamb. And the thing that made him worthy to open the scroll isn't his power. <laughs> it's the fact that he's the slain lamb. 
And when he opened the fourth seal, he heard a voice of the fourth living creature saying, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse. Now, some, uh, the, the word that's translated pale is a little bit tricky. Um, it can be translated pale, it can be translated green, it can be translated dappled. It depends on how you do the translation work. Um, I'll tell you what I think it is in a minute, in, in, um, in a couple minutes. Um, okay, 10 minutes. Uh, and its rider's name was death. Okay, that's interesting. And Hades followed him. Why? Because imperial conquest leads to war, which leads to injustice, which leads to death. Always. It does. Look, read history. It does. This is how it works. There's nothing new in any of this. There's nothing like, oh, wait a minute. What are you saying? I'm saying this is how history works. It's the way of the world. So we start with imperial conquest. It goes to war. It goes to injustices. And then it goes to death. Who dies? The the weak ones. And so the, the, it says they were given authority over the, a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Hold on to those things because we're going to come back to them here in a little bit. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. So here's what's happening. Imperial conquest leads to war, which leads to injustice, which leads to death, which leads to those who would stand against what all of this is for, they get murdered too. For the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They're not escaping any of this. They have to figure out how to endure it. In the name of the word of God and the witness that they borne, the life that they live led them to death. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So these saints, the souls of the saints that are under the altar are crying out like, God, stop making people die. Stop, stop doing this. Stop letting this happen because it's broken. And he's like, I I know. It's not how things are supposed to go. It's not what the world's supposed to look like. And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So there's more death coming and some of these saints that are in the midst of this injustice on the wrong end, some of them are destined for death. And the full number of them had not died yet. That's John's encouragement to his church. Like That doesn't feel too positive, John. John. 
And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as fig tree sheds its winter fruit when it's shaken by a gale. Hold on to that word picture. The sky vanished like a scroll. Hold on to that word picture. That is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and of the mountains uh, and calling to the mountains and rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? By the way, this is, this is the way the world goes. It's the way that it ends when we pursue the world's definition of power. It's how it goes. And here's the problem. So many of us are trying to figure out how to engage culture in a way to change that. Listen to me. This is prophecy. You can't change it. So we better learn to buck up because it's coming. The question is, will we endure or will we quit? And there are too many Christians who are so weak-willed that at the first sign of trouble, we're going to bail out. And that'll be our testimony. That's not the souls under the altar who are given a robe and a crown. It's not them. We don't get to quit. And there doesn't seem to be any indication anywhere in this book that we get to be liberated out. And I know that there's so many views on the end times that are looking forward to the liberation of the saints out of this world. I just don't read it in Revelation. I just don't. I, I, like, you can fight me on that. You can disagree with me. I don't care. Like, it's okay. I just don't see it. And, and can, I, can I just say that this isn't a reference to the blood moons? Oh my gosh. That is not what's going on. This is a throwback to the prophets describing what happens when empire comes to town. The, the, did you know that the four horsemen of the apocalypse existed hundreds of years before the writing of Revelation? You guys are like, oh yeah, Zechariah 6. Right? I was, I was, reading, I was memorizing that this morning. And again, I come, like the reason why we struggle to wrestle with Revelation well is because we don't know our text. We don't know where John's pulling from. Look at look, Zechariah 6. Just look at it. Look at it, look at it. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses and the fourth chariot dappled horses. Does this sound familiar? Yes. 
all of them strong. And then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. And the chariot with the black horses goes towards the north country. The white ones go after them and the dappled ones go out toward the south country. And with the strong uh, horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go and patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth, <laughs> which is a good thing for them to do after he says that. And then he cried to, to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And the word of the Lord came to me, take from the exiles. <laughs> do, you, do, you ever, do you ever get tired of reading Bible names? <laughs> can, can we just call them H-Bomb and T-Dog and J-D? Can we just call them that for the sake of Take from the exiles H-Bomb and T-Dog and J-D and who, who have arrived from Babylon and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniahu, which is actually how you say that in Hebrew. Um, take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And take away, say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is, is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor, shall sit and rule on his throne." And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to them guys. <laughs> and then those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass. It shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So like, how is he, why is he pulling on this reference? What's the context of Zechariah? Well, here's the context. As Babylon is crushing you, understand that this will run its course and there is a day coming when a king and a priest will come and build the temple of our God. So you have to keep overcoming you have to keep enduring. You have to keep weathering the storm because in the end, it's that testimony that would allow those to have, to have a remnant on the day that the priest and the king show up. You have to keep going. Whether or not it happens in your life is of no consequence. That's God's timing for you. But you have to keep going because if you don't, then those who would be there on the day that that gets resolved won't know who Jesus is. And I think for so many of us, we get caught up in this journey of, well, life's so hard for me, I'm gonna quit. What about the testimony that you leave for your grandchildren? To endure, to hang in there, to keep going, to stand in the right place. What Zechariah 6 is saying is there is coming a day, but this is how the world works. We, we know where this is all headed. We just got to keep overcoming. And John is pulling off of that message into Revelation chapter 6. 
We know where this is all headed. It's not new. And why does he do that? Well, here's why. Because there's a whole group of Gentile readers that are reading this and going, John, brilliant cultural play. Brilliant. Well done, John. Mic drop on that. But there's a group of Jewish Jesus followers that are like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Here's what he's actually saying. And the good news is we've learned how to suffer. Let us show you the way. I think it's important for those of us that are a few decades down the road in our faith journey that we tell the testimony of endurance, that we talk about the things that we've overcome. It's important for those who come behind us because when they, you remember when you faced the first difficult thing and you're like, I don't know if I can do this. Like over time, you just learn It doesn't make what you're enduring any easier. It just means I just know that this isn't the end. We love God as deliverer. But God keeps asking us to be overcomers. Not to be delivered out of a situation, but to stay steadfast in it. In overcoming we learn where our real strength comes from. You don't learn where your strength comes from in deliverance. Because you don't ever have to develop any of the strength. It's like going to the gym and going, Lord, deliver me from having to move those 50-pound weights. And he's like, okay, you're delivered. And you're like, yes, Lord. Now you walked out of there 25-pound weight strong which is fine until you got to pick up something that weighs 50 pounds. That's the way this works. We don't learn where our strength comes from when we don't have to endure. What about death? Like what about, it's not a noun in this bad, like a thing that happens to us. It's, it's a personification, like a pronoun. It's it's. It's listed as a pronoun grammatically, like which is interesting. What about that? I wonder, I wonder if he was thinking about Hosea 13. That also lists death as a pronoun. Um, I, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up, his spring shall be parched, it shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. What is he saying here? He's like, listen, death may very well cause problems. He may show up and wreak all kinds of havoc. But listen to me. The east wind is going to blow. God is going to show up. He is. Will you be there when he does? Or will you have bailed out already? If we keep reading, it says, Samaria shall bear her guilt because she's rebelled against her God, they shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Gross. Yeah, it's the Bible. You should read it.
Jeremiah 15. What about Jeremiah 15? Jeremiah also prophesying to Babylon, to, to slaves in Babylon. Here's what he says. When they ask you, where shall we go? You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, those who are for pestilence to pestilence, those who are for the sword to the sword. By the way, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you know that this is a direct quote out of the book of Re Revelation pulls this as a direct quote into the letter. Those who are for famine to famine and those who are for captivity to captivity, I will appoint over them four kinds of destroyers. Interesting. Declares the Lord, the sword to kill, the dogs to tear, and the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. Didn't we hear something in Revelation 6 about the wild beast that came to destroy? Interesting. Listen, here's what Jeremiah is saying. The, the people that are held captive in Babylon being crushed by empire are like, God, how long are you going to, like, where do we go to protect ourselves from this? He says, I'll tell you where to go. If it's for pestilence, go to pestilence. If you're, if you're appointed for the sword, go to the sword. If you're appointed for famine, go to famine. That's where you go. That is not the answer I was looking for. Right? Listen, there are some times in our life that we give a testimony of who God is because of the victory that he's displayed in our life. Much more often, we give a testimony of who God is and how much he means to us because of the way that we endure. What about Jeremiah 24? Uh, still prophesying to Babylon, and I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave them to and their fathers. What the? I don't like that at all. Listen to me. Again, this is prophecy. It's the way the world works. It's coming. You're not going to be able to to avoid it. It's it's coming. Well, I shouldn't say it that way. You'll be able to avoid it. Here's how you do. Give up on your faith. It's the coward's way. But you can do it that way. What about Ezekiel 5? Like, Ezekiel's, when I stand against you in the deadly arrows of famine, the deadly arrows of famine, when I send against you the deadly arrows of famine, arrows for destruction, which I will send to destroy you. And when I bring more and more famine upon you and break your supply of bread, I will send famine and wild beasts against you. Again, this pull from to Revelation 6. And they will rob you of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you and I will bring the sword upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Ow, I, we don't like a God who says that, right? But here's the deal. He said it. Now we get to decide what we're going to do with that information. What about the earthquakes? There's literally a jillion passages. I don't want to get all technical on you, but there's a lot of passages about earthquakes that we could use, but I think some of them are particularly tied to the way that earthquake is being used in Revelation 6. Ezekiel 38 says this, for in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath, I declare on that day, there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. 
the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall and every wall shall tumble to the ground. What about Isaiah 34? Isaiah, I mean, Isaiah's money, all of Isaiah you can pull from and people be very familiar with it in that world. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. Remember I told you to hang on to that in Revelation 6. The skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. Remember that metaphor is also used in Revelation 6. These people that are reading this letter for the first time were not baffled by the contents of Revelation. Here's what I want to do with this. I, I need to tell you. Um, I, I want to make sure that I choose my words carefully as we tie this sermon down. And, and while this sermon's been a lot of information and interesting connections and all that stuff. I want to anchor it to something for you and me that I think is important. And so um, I borrowed an excerpt from a friend of mine, uh, Marty, who preached on Thyatira. Remember him? You know, beard. Um, No hair, beard. Uh, (laughs) um, He wrote this, and I stole it. And it says exactly what I think we need to say. And so the words are chosen very carefully. Um, here's what it says. I'm going to go back and read the first sentence again. These people were not baffled by the contents of Revelation. The people there understood the immediate application to their immediate context. The Jewish listeners in their midst were equipped to expound on the teaching of John deliberately buried in the letter as a source of encouragement and exhortation. Please understand that the original readers would not have projected these pictures and ideas into the future. These references are about their own brothers and sisters, aunts, uncles, and cousins, even moms and dads. The souls of those who'd been slain were people that they knew by name. I believe that one of the reasons you and I have a difficult time interpreting the book of Revelation, the reason that we immediately project its meaning into the future is because we corporately don't know what it's like to be on the side of true persecution. Now, let me be clear. That's not saying that any of you aren't experiencing pain. I know know your stories. Like some of you are experiencing tremendous amounts of pain. But corporately, the church in America does not understand how to experience true persecution. We don't know what it is like to sit on the other side of the Roman sword. We don't know what it is like to watch the systemic and premeditated pursuit and extermination of our fellowship. And it affects our ability to understand an apocalyptic letter written to a group of people who fear for their lives. We don't know how to hear its message of perseverance and the call to remain vigilant and steadfast even to the point of death. Quite frankly, we've spent most of our time at the handle end of the sword. For the last 1,700 years, we fought for our own rights instead of pursuing the self-sacrificial way of Jesus. 
We've been more concerned with culture wars than we have been with anything that would have ever occupied the minds of those who preserved the faith that we too often misinterpret. We have mistaken the loss of privilege for persecution. Let me say that one again. We've mistaken the loss of privilege for persecution. There is a host of people slain under the altar in the book of Revelation who cry out for us to remember what they signed up for. What they gave their lives for. They didn't give their lives so that we could live comfortable American dreams and protect our privilege. They laid down their lives because it's what their rabbi did. He taught them how to trust in and live out a narrative of self-sacrifice. It is the story that you and I are invited to trust in and live out too. May we honor their memory. But more importantly, may we hallow the name of God. It's too easy to get sucked into the world's definition of how things work and sprinkle Jesus on top of that and expect the cause to be noble. But it isn't. It is never noble to ask anyone else to suffer so that I can succeed. That is not the way of the slain lamb. Jesus is inviting us to the way of the slain lamb. It is the way that the kingdom triumphs. It does not triumph at the handle end of the sword. All through history, nations have tried it. Everyone's tried it. And it always ends in the same place. It always ends in the same place. I have some implications for us this morning. And so while we do that, uh, our communion team is going to go back and get the elements. If you're new with us today, we have an open table. What that means is anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to take communion. But we want you to hold the elements till the end and we'll take it all together um, as a family. Implication number one, God remains unmoved in the face of worldly chaos. Like, let the chaos happen. The, and I know, like, I'm not begging for misery. That's not it. But what I also know is if I need to endure, I can. Because the appeal of Revelation is never forget that the tomb's empty. Never forget that the tomb's empty. God remains unmoved in the face of chaos. Implication number two. You are never alone. There are always others in the story, past, present, and future. Let me help you understand what I mean by that. I, uh, I got to tell you a story. So I, I've run two marathons in my life. Um, and I know that as soon as I say that, you guys are like, you look like a guy who runs marathons. 
I ran my first marathon because somebody said I wasn't built to run marathons. And I was like, oh, really? And I didn't have a clue. Here's what I've learned in running marathons is that I'm really good at half marathons. But the problem is, don't ever tell me that I'm running half of something, right? Like it's 13.1 miles. You should be proud of that. Not very many people can do that, but it's only half of a marathon. So um, that's the, now you know a little bit about my personality. Like don't, don't ever tell me I'm doing half of something because I'll kill myself doing the whole thing. Um, but I, my first marathon as I trained, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I was just running a lot and on a lot, a lot. I was like, I'm just going to add a mile every day until I run 26 miles. Uh, turns out that's not a great way to go. Um, but I didn't know. And so I was, I overtrained substantially. I got tendonitis in my knee, um, right, right towards the end of my training. I got tendonitis in my knee and it hurt. My IT band was really tight. Every time I'd step, it would shoot pain. It would grab my sciatic nerve. It was, it was bad. Um, it was painful. And I, I, I was having a hard time training. So the day of the race comes and I take like 12 ibuprofen because what liver damage, right? Like I'm good. Uh, if that's the worst thing I've done to damage my liver, then my, I don't have a strong testimony. Um, so I, uh, I was running and I felt pretty good and I'll never forget you know, uh, 12 and a half miles, I'm 12 and a half miles into the race and I'm coming around a corner and I step and pain just shot. Like it felt like it went all the way up into the middle of my back. I was like, oh gosh. And I stopped and, and I felt like I could barely move, right? My first thought was, man, I, I ran 12 and a half miles. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. This is my second thought. I'm not even halfway done yet. How am I going to do this? Because here's the thing. What I knew is I could quit. Ran 12 and a half miles. Nothing to be ashamed of, right? Like, I could quit. The problem with that is I knew I'd have to look my wife in the eye. And, and here's the thing about that. She wouldn't have made me feel bad, but... You know, training for a marathon is a major investment of time. And, and my whole family sacrificed, you know, my, I can only do my long runs on, on Saturdays because that's the only time I had enough time to do it. So every day that we had our kids, like as a family, I was off running for four or five hours. And like, and all the food and, and the, the hotel and the traveling and the, you know, all, like this was a major investment on my family's part. And I, and I was like, I can't, I can't look her in the eye and tell her I didn't finish. I can't do it. All the investment that she made, all the sacrifice that my kids made, all of that would be for nothing. And so I started thinking like, how do I keep myself motivated in this. Here's, here's my point. There were two things that allowed me to finish that race. No, I didn't finish it in any spectacular fashion, but I finished it. I don't think God's asking us to finish in spectacular fashion. Just keep going, right? Two things kept me going. One is the reality of who I would let down if I quit. 
The other one was stories of people who had done like really hard, like every sea biscuit, miracle on ice, like every thing, every story that I could think of, every overcomer story that I could think of, I was running in my head. The, the stories of people who had been through hard things and kept going, like that kept, that kept me going. And then the reality of who I would let down if I quit, that kept me going. And I think that's true in our testimony of our faith journey as well. We're never alone because we have the stories of those who came before us. These people who were the first readers of Revelation, they endured, like they did it. And we sit in this room today because they did it. And then there's the reality of who I let down if I quit. I don't know which one hurts worse, but I don't know if I could look my kids in the eye and say, I've bailed out on my faith. You're never alone in this journey. Implication number three. Our faith is built on the foundation of those who endured unbelievable persecution because they believed in the power of resurrection. That in the end of this, no matter what we endure, even if it takes us to death, we serve a God who conquers even that space. Implication number four, our belief in resurrection should cause us to lay down our fear and walk shamelessly in the way that leads to life. We don't have to be ashamed of it. And as our culture gets more complicated and more, not just non-Christian, but almost anti-Christian, so what, what am I afraid of? What are you going to do? Spank me and take away my birthday? I turned 50 this year. You can take that birthday away all day long. I don't care. Right? I don't need that one. I don't need any more birthdays. Take it all away. I don't care. This world is not my home. So what? So what? We can walk shamelessly in the way that leads to life. And I think as we move into communion time, the, the, the power of resurrection and this thing that we remember in communion, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus often gets lost in the chaos of the world's definition of what success and power and happiness is. And I would just offer as we start thinking about preparing our hearts for communion, for you to wrestle with this question, like what is it that is getting in the way? Where, where in this last week has your... Have you been distracted? Where have you been distracted? Because I think the invitation of resurrection is to get back to what actually matters. Let's talk with the Lord about that for just a minute as we get our hearts ready for communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. Let's remember him together. And then after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, this is the blood of the covenant, which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for 
the incredible promise uh, that you never leave us in the midst of these things that we endure. Thank you that you strengthen us. Lord, give us courage to face the world as a slain lamb. In Jesus' name, amen.